The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open to Matthew chapter 24. And I have to tell you that it is with a great amount of anticipation that we come to this 24th chapter where Jesus talks about what's going to happen at the end, the last days, what will happen at the end, how is the Lord going to bring this world as we know it to a close. And this part of Matthew is the long answer to the disciples' questions in verse number 3 in which they ask, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? And I can tell you that is a very important question, or series of very important questions. And I think that's the reason that Jesus spent so much time in detail about this. When is he coming? How do we know when he's coming? When does the end come? Those are questions that people seem to be always interested in. Almost every Sunday when I'm standing at the door, somebody will come by and they'll say something like this. Do you think that what we see happening around us now is an indication that the Lord is coming? Do you think that the end is near? Well, there have been whole religious movements that have sprung up just because of these kinds of questions. Seventh-day Adventist is one of those groups and you can tell by their name Adventist that it has something to do with the coming of the Lord because we talk about the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, and those are the two times of his appearing. And in the 1840s, there was a huge movement that swept the United States, and it was largely owing to the writings of a Baptist minister by the name of William Miller, and he wrote this. He said, I believe the times can be known by all who desire to understand and to be ready for his coming. And I am fully convinced that sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844, according to the Jewish mode of computation of time, Christ will come and bring all his saints with him and that then he will reward every man as his work shall be. Now the followers of William Miller were known as Millerites, and they were the forerunners of the modern-day Seventh-day Adventist. And they settled on the exact date that Christ would return, and they established his return as October 22, 1844. So William Miller was very much opposed to what Jesus wrote later in this chapter, in verse number 36, where he says, But of the day and the hour, that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. So William Miller said, I know when Jesus is coming back. And Jesus said, you don't know when I'm coming back. And on that day in 1844, there were about 100,000 of these people that gathered to wait for Christ's return. And as you know, Christ did not appear and so rather than that date being known as the day of great expectation, it's actually historically known as the day of great disappointment. Now that, that was not the first time, uh, and it won't be the last time that somebody has predicted the coming of Christ. In 2011, very recent to us, Harold Camping predicted that 
Christ would come on May 21st, 2011, and all of you are very familiar with the hullabaloo that surrounded that announcement. And what Camping did was to purchase 100,000 billboards worldwide in which he put a message on them and he says that, ju- that said that judgment is coming and that everybody needs to get right with God. And I think that there's some of you that cleaned up your lives just a little bit when that announcement was made. There were some people that stopped paying their mortgages. Uh, there were people that cashed out their retirement accounts. And I can't figure that one out. Why would they do it? Because you can't take it with you. So I don't know why they would do that. But they believed that this prediction was true and the camping was on to something when he, when he put out this complicated mathematical formula to try to prove when Christ was coming back. Well, there was a billboard that was left standing after all of that, and it was this one. And that's what the world thought about it. But people are very interested in the coming of Christ. Every year there are prophecy conferences about it, and thousands of people attend those conferences, and everybody pretty much wants to know exactly what the disciples asked. Jesus, when are you coming back? Are there any indications when you're coming back? When is the world going to end? Well, Jesus took time to answer those questions, and the answers are found here in chapters 24 and 25 in what we now know, or what we call the Olivet Discourse. And this is one of the three major teaching times of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount, and then there are the parables of the kingdom, and then the third one is the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus speaks about the last days and what will happen in those days. Now let's look at our Bibles at Matthew 24, and we're going to spend uh, several weeks talking about the end times and looking at the answers that Jesus gave to these questions. So let's stand, if you would, please. We're going to read the first part of Matthew chapter 24. And here in verse number 1, it says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. For then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then the end shall come. Father, we thank you for your word and what blessed words of our Savior. Help us, Lord, as we... 
look at this passage in the next several weeks to learn more about it and what Jesus wants us to know about when he's coming back. Help us, Lord, to look forward to that time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As I've said, the Olivet Discourse goes through the, the, the rest of this chapter and on into chapter 25. In chapter 24, there's given some detailed information, and then when we get into chapter 25, that's more about parables of Jesus as he gives illustrations of the things that he's taught. And I need to tell you right at the beginning that there's a great deal of argument about what all of this means. There are different interpretations. People are very much different in their conclusions how these things will play out. Some believe that what's described in this chapter are things that have happened in the past, that we're actually reading an historical account here. These things have already taken place, so we can look back on what is written in Matthew 24. There are others who say that we're living these things in the present, and much of what Jesus talks about here is symbolic or it's allegorical. These are things that are actually happening to us in the present time. And there are still others that say that Uh, this is not now, this is not these times in which we're living in, but these are future events. These are things that have not happened yet, and so they take a futuristic view of Matthew 24 and 25. And I'll have to say that I mostly agree with those who look at these as future events. I do think that Jesus uh, talks about some things that would come upon them very soon, But when he actually begins the Olivet Discourse and he gets into this, and that begins at verse number 4, that the theme that he's talking about is another time, a future time other than the time that we're living in right now. Now, obviously, as we've read the Scripture, uh, you probably notice that he speaks of wars and we live in a time when there are wars. He talks about earthquakes, and those of us in California are not too... uh, Surprise when we feel the earth move under our feet. We have earthquakes. There are famines that happen. There are droughts that go on in the world. We've always had those kinds of things. And so I don't think that Jesus is so much referring to the types of things that we see right now, but I think rather that he's referring to a tremendous ramp up of natural disasters or supernatural disasters, certain happenings to the earth and to the heavens that never have been seen before. And as we look at that, we'll see other places in the Word of God where he talks about such things. And so I don't think that he's talking about the time that we're living in right at this moment, although it could begin very, very soon or could even begin today. But it's not anything that we've already experienced. This is something that's yet to happen in the future when there's going to be this ramp up of all these different things that will take place. Now, the disciples wanted to know, as they went out to the Mount of Olives, they wanted to know what are the indications that we are actually living in the very last times. When shall these things be? And Jesus answered those questions even though, as we'll see just a little bit later in another message, that they didn't frame their question in the right way. They didn't really understand the answers that he gave very clearly. At least at this time, they didn't much understand what Jesus had to say about the end times, and and they wouldn't know that until the Holy Spirit came. And as we learn in the book of Acts, that uh, he recalled to their 
to their memory things that Jesus taught, and they began to understand these things in a, in a clearer manner. And so we have the rest of the New Testament that explains many of the things that they discovered about it, that they learned through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want to do today, before we set the stage and we get the background of the questions and all that's going on here, I want to speak to you this morning about the importance of studying the doctrine of end times. Now, this is the introductory sermon to uh, this series. And what I want to talk to you about today, and we'll stay right here with this subject this morning, and that is the importance of the study. Why is it so important to study this? And what I'd like to do is to give you four reasons why we should study about the coming of Christ, why it's necessary for Christians to study the places in the Bible that speak of the coming of Christ. Now, I'll get to the reasons in just a moment, but I would like to point out this, that it's very important for us to study this because this is one of the major themes of Scripture. Looking at all of Scripture as a whole, there is more that is said about the second coming of Christ than any other topic in the Bible except faith. And that ought to tell you that this is something that Christians are to study and to know about. So should we really concern ourselves with it? Is it all right for us to ignore it? Or do we need to take time to study it and look at the many different issues that surround the coming of Christ? Is it necessary? Well, here's the first reason that I want to give you why we should study about the coming of Christ, and that is we study to be blessed. We study this to be blessed. I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 1. And as you know, or you should know if you're a Christian, the book of Revelation is devoted to this subject. Uh, it talks to us about the end times. And if you want the theological term for that, we have it for this, on the screen for you. Uh, this is the study of eschatology. This is what we're going to talk about for several weeks, the study of eschatology or the study of end times. And Revelation is the study of eschatology, the study of end times. And I want you to notice here something the Apostle John said in verse number 3. And if you're writing something down, just hold on a moment and look at this in verse number 3. He said, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Blessed is he that readeth. Now, it might interest you to know that the book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that begins this way. In the book of Genesis, it does not say, you are blessed if you read the book of Genesis. We've been reading from the Psalms every Sunday morning, and the Psalms do not begin by saying, blessed are you if you read the book of Psalms. Now, to be fair about it, in the very first psalm, it does say that a man is blessed if he meditates on the law of God. But nowhere does it say you are blessed if you read the psalms. We've been studying Matthew for six years, and Matthew does not begin, blessed are you if you read the gospel of Matthew. Now, of course, we do believe that you're blessed by reading all of the Bible, and if you've not been blessed by our study in Matthew, then we just had a colossal waste of time for these six years. No, we're blessed when we read any part of the Bible. And the Bible affirms that in many different places. Whenever you study the Bible, what you do is you find out about God. You come to know God. 
And that is the highest pursuit of every person. That's the highest pursuit of our lives is that we might know God. And so we're blessed when we know about God. And all of the scriptures infer that reading the Bible will help you and will be a blessing to you. But here in the book of Revelation, we have more than inference. We actually have the statement, a very direct statement that says, you'll be blessed if you read these prophecies. And what are these prophecies about? Well, they're about the coming of Christ. And we'll refer to Revelation over and over again as we go through this study. But Revelation is the only book that specifically says you'll be blessed as you read it. Now, just as an aside, there are many people that don't believe what John wrote in Revelation 1 verse 3. They don't think that they're going to be blessed if they read Revelation. They think that they'll be confused if they read Revelation. Martin Luther was so befuddled about the book of Revelation that at first he concluded that it shouldn't even be included in the Bible. Later on, he changed his opinion about that, but it was always troublesome to him to try to study the book of Revelation. And maybe that's what you think about it. You just don't bother. Maybe you're reading through your Bible and uh, you'd like to read through your Bible in a year or you have some kind of a Bible reading program that you use and you come to Revelation and just sort of throw up a stop sign. Don't want to go there. Revelation is just too confusing. And you're thinking, I'm already too confused about what's happening now. So why get confused about what's happening in the future? And so there are people that approach this kind of a study and they say, well, let's just stay away from it. Now, one of the reasons that people do that is because of the influence of men like William Miller, the Adventist, or of Harold Camping, the alarmist. And they've made all of these wild predictions about the coming of Christ And they just believe if you get too deeply into this that you're going to go off into some wild and crazy ideas. And there have been people that have done that. Uh, Not long ago, a few years ago in the Bay Area, uh, Jim Jones convinced a huge group of people that the end was near. And he made sure of it by giving them poison Kool-Aid. So the end was really near for those people. And, and And I was putting that in my notes I wrote down the poison Kool-Aid, and I accidentally wrote poison Kook-Aid. And I don't know if that was a Freudian slip or a Freakian slip or something like that. But, you know, there have been people like that. There was David Koresh in Waco, Texas, who convinced many people that he was the Messiah. And we know what happened there. It turned out badly for him, turned out badly for his followers, and turned out badly for the FBI and the ATF and just about everybody that was involved in it. So people just look at this and they say, well, what's going to happen? You're going to go nuts if you try to study this stuff. And then there's still others that say they don't want to study it because it's too scary. They don't want to think about Revelation. They don't want to read these predictions of earthquakes and famines. In Revelation, you'll find places where it speaks of hordes of demons that are like plagues of locusts. And there's this frightening picture of demons with faces like men and hair like women and stingers in their tails like scorpions. And the Bible says that in the last times, these demons will come upon the earth and they'll sting people. They'll cause them to wish that they could die and they can't die even though they're suffering so much pain. And yet still with all of that, the book of Revelation says you'll be blessed if you study it. Now we notice something in our passage in Matthew, that Jesus did not say, don't ask questions about this. 
He didn't say, this stuff is just too scary. This is too confusing for you. You'll never understand this. And he didn't say, occupy your minds with what's going on right now and don't worry about what's going to happen in the future. And I actually read after a very good Baptist preacher who advocated that position. Just don't worry about what's going to happen in the future. Concern yourself with what's happening now. And so people think, well, if you study this stuff, or Jesus said, if you study this stuff, then you're going to go sit on the housetop, you're going to wait for me to return, and you'll get so confused about it all, you're going to end up in a cult and you'll go crazy. No, he just answered their question, and he actually gave the longest answer to any question that was ever asked. Why? Because they would be blessed if they knew the truth. Everything that God says is golden, like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Every word of God is golden, and you're blessed when you know it. And so Jesus wanted them to know the truth. We're blessed when we study anything that God has to say, and you will certainly be blessed by studying the end times. So that's reason number one. We study it because we want to be blessed. And the Word of God gives us that promise. Study this, and it'll be good for you. You will be blessed. Now, the second reason that we need to study about the end times is that we study to receive hope. Did you know that the coming of Christ is referred to as the blessed hope? In Titus 2.13, the Apostle Paul wrote, looking for that blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is great hope in the coming of Christ. There is such hope that Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And when does God's kingdom come? Well, it comes when Christ comes. When Christ comes, there's the lifting of the curse from the world. His coming is a time of fulfillment. It's a time when the world will be radically altered and put back into the state that it was in in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 65. And here is one of the many Old Testament prophecies that speak of the coming of Christ. And let me add to that that we're much enlightened by what's written in Old Testament prophecy but we're enlightened because we also have the New Testament. Now, the, the apostles didn't have the New Testament, and so their interpretations of these things were skewed. And we'll talk about that later, how uh, they did have their own eschatological position, and their confusion was indicated by the way that they asked their question, and I'll show you that next time that we talk about this. But just briefly here, the Old Testament prophets did not understand two appearances of Christ. And so what they tend to do in their prophecies is they compress all of this into one advent, and that's what caused the disciples to believe that in their time, that when they recognized Jesus as the Messiah, that it was their time that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. Now notice what Isaiah says about the coming of the Lord. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. 
There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they're yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Now that's a pretty impressive picture, isn't it? What what a great time this is. The, The world is going to be completely changed when Christ comes again. When the kingdom comes, it tells us here that people are going to live to be way old. It says that they'll be as old as trees. I've been told I'm older than dirt. The Bible says that we're going to be old as trees. He teaches here that all of our work is going to be super productive. When crops are planted, weeds won't overcome them, the bugs won't eat them, droughts won't affect them. The animal kingdom will be at peace with each other and with man, and man and nations will be at peace with each other and there won't be any war. So I can tell you every morning when I get up, I always pray what Jesus said. Thy kingdom come. And I pray for that because there is such hope in Christ's kingdom. Now, the other day I was on my way to church and I saw a car that had two bumper stickers and there were two quotes. The first one was from Jesus that said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Then the other quote was from Jimi Hendrix who said, When the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. And that just tells you how blind that the world is to think that Jimi Hendrix and Jesus are equal prophets. But I do know the one who brings peace. I know the one, the only one who can bring peace. And peace will not come to this world until Jesus Christ brings his kingdom to this world. And when he does that, all people will be at peace. And most importantly, rather than being at peace with man, which will happen, everyone will have peace with God. And so I pray for that. I look forward to that. So we study this to get hope from it. Whenever we get depressed and we think that the whole world is against us, we just stop about and stop and think about this and think about the time when Jesus will come back. And we look at the troubles that we experience in this life, so many hardships that we have, and we ought to realize that this life is only 70 years or so, and that's all the trouble that we have. Or in the case of Zella and, and uh, Hazel, maybe a couple hundred years or so, and that would be the extent of our life. But even that is a very, very short time when it's compared to eternity. And so we just step back and we think about that Christ is coming, and we know that he's going to set the world right. Eternity is coming. This is no fluke. And God wants you to know that. He wants you to understand and believe this. He's coming. And if you have that kind of hope, the world's not going to trouble you so much. So there's a better day coming, and Christ brings that day when his kingdom comes. That's our hope. 
Well, we have a third reason <clears throat> to study about the coming of Christ. This will take just a little bit of time. And that is we are to study to be different. Study this to be different. Studying about the coming of Christ will make you a different person. Well, how does it do that? Well, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> he wrote, But the day of Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and all the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation? That means in your manner of life, in all your manner of life and godliness. So the second coming of Christ, according to Peter, should have bearing on the way that you live as you're waiting for Christ to return. Now what does Peter mean when he says, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved? All these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And what he's telling us there very simply is that there's nothing in this world that's going to last. Nothing that we have here is going to hold up. So everything that you think is so dear, all of those things that you hold on to are unimportant. The cash that you have in the bank, the car that you drive, the house that you live in, don't spend all of your time with those things because those things will not last. You don't wait for eternity to live for eternity. No, you start living for it right now. It ought to change you right now. The coming of Christ may, ought to make you realize what is important. It ought to change your priorities. It ought to change what you do. It ought to change what you do with your family. It ought to change what you do in your relationships with your fellow man. You see, Christ is coming. The end is coming, and people need to know Christ. And so the coming of Christ, if you really have it on your mind and you really believe it's true, it'll change you from being a complacent Christian, from complacent Christianity to urgent Christianity. Now, because Christ is coming, you ought to be a different person. And if you're not then you don't really believe it. And I think most Christians act like they don't believe it because if they thought that Christ could break through the clouds right now, they wouldn't do some of the things that they do. You wouldn't catch them doing some things they do. And the Apostle John had something to say about that. He wrote in 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Well, that's a very sobering thought for us, not to be ashamed. Ashamed at the coming of Christ. Now, the Word of God says we ought to be hopeful that Christ is coming. Someone who is ashamed and who is a Christian is totally upside down to the whole tenor of Scripture. We're looking forward to the coming of Christ. We don't want to avoid it because we might be ashamed, and yet there are people that live to be ashamed. So do you really believe that he's coming? It ought to make a difference in you. It ought to make a difference from people that don't believe he's coming, shouldn't it? The world is filled with people that don't believe he's coming, and so if you do believe he's coming, it ought to make you something different from the rest of those people. And yet I am afraid that there are many Christians that will be ashamed when Christ comes back. They're, they're not living in the blessed hope that he'll suddenly appear 
And so there's some Christians that when Christ comes back, they'll be caught doing some very nasty things, some things that are really, really bad, and they're going to be very ashamed when Christ comes. So why should we study about his coming? We study this because it makes us different people. Well, it's no wonder that the Apostle John said, whoever studies this will be blessed because it makes you a different person, and that means a person who is like the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're like the Lord Jesus Christ, you are abundantly blessed. First John, again, John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So you have this hope of Christ coming, the blessed hope that's described in the Word of God. If you believe that he's coming, it says you will purify yourself even as Christ is pure. So believe this. Study about it. One day Christ is going to come and we're going to see him as he is. And we have this promise that when he comes, we shall be like him. And I can tell you, you can start on that right now. You don't want to wait till Christ comes to be like him. That's what your sanctification is about that I talked about last week. Study to be different. Start by being different, by living like Christ. Now, fourthly then, why should we study about the second coming? And this is very important for us. Why do we study? We study to avoid deception. Study this to avoid deception. Now, how did I begin the message? I know it's a long time ago, so I will remind you of what was said. In the 1840s, William Miller deceived thousands of people when he said that Christ was coming in 1844. Now, here's something that you'll find to be true, that when people go off on this doctrine of when Christ is going to return, and they come up with some of their wild and crazy ideas about the return of Christ, you can also find that following along after that are many erroneous doctrines. Many false doctrines follow the wrong ideas about the coming of Christ. Now, to help you to understand that a little bit better, I just talked to you about William Miller. He was the forerunner of the Seventh-day Adventist. Later, along came Ellen G. White, and she became the leader of the Adventist movement. And now the Adventists believe that what Ellen, Wright, Ellen G. White wrote and what she said are equal to the words of God. They called her a prophet. And so in effect, they deny that when God gave us the revelation that that was the last book, the final book of the Bible, that God didn't have anything else for us because they look at the prophecies of Ellen G. White as being scripture. You have people like the Jehovah Witnesses, another group of deceivers and they're confused about the coming of Christ, and that's how they got started, talking about when Christ would come. They said that there would be 144,000 of them that would be saved, and then the end would come. And as we all know, there were more than 144,000. There are actually millions of them. And this is not the only doctrine that they're messed up on. The, the Jehovah Witnesses do not believe that Christ is eternal God they do not believe in hell. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They have the Watchtower magazine, which they also believe is equal to Scripture. You have to watch out for the Mormons. 
They also have doctrines that are wrong about the coming of Christ. And here's the thing about a Mormon. When a Mormon comes to your house and hands you a King James Bible, that's nothing but a prop to get in the door. Nothing but a prop to get in the door. And there's all kinds of wild and crazy ideas that go along with Mormonism. So there are many other deceptions that go hand in hand with confusion about Christ's return. Now, if I go back to Harold Camping for just a minute, uh, he predicted the coming of Christ on more than one occasion. In fact, he predicted it several times. Uh, there was a big to-do with him in 1994 when he said that Christ was coming back, and he was wrong about that. And then in 2011, May the 21st, we mentioned that just a moment ago, when Christ didn't appear, then Harold Camping said, oh, well, he actually did appear, but it was a spiritual appearance. And he is actually going to come back so we can see him in October of 2011. And so October 2011 came and went, and Christ didn't come. And so all of Harold Camping's credibility, if you ever had any, by that point was gone. Now, interesting, though, interesting though my, my point about deception on top of deception is that when I first came to California, I listened to some of Harold Camping's sermons. Now, this is a long time ago, and Harold Camping was right on a lot of things. Now, he was wrong with his doctrine of the coming of Christ, and then that started to eat away at the other doctrines on which he was right. And he just started to go to pieces on all these other doctrines. Camping claimed that the church was not for this time. He said the church is dead. And Christians that are in churches ought to get out of churches as quickly as possible. And so Harold Camping hated the church. And what I've spent my entire life doing is preaching to get people saved and baptized and in the church. And Harold Camping said, you don't need to be in a church. And yet the Bible says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. Every Christian ought to be a member of the Lord's church. So we ought not to get out of the church. But that's what he was preaching. And he had a lot, much larger platform than I have to tell the truth. So this kind of thing happens when you go off on doctrine, uh, this doctrine of the end times. There's a lot of wrong stuff that follows it. And so you want to study about this so that you won't go wrong on other doctrines. Uh, recently in our church, we had a family that joined with us and they didn't understand. And that might be giving them a little bit too much credit. Uh, I much would rather say probably they did not believe. They did not believe what the Bible teaches about the second coming. And you know what followed that? Well, what followed was they were confused about the church. They had no respect for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so eventually, they just left. So you need to study this so as not to be deceived. We don't want to end up like Harold Camping or Jim Jones or David Koresh. We study this so that when a deceiver comes along, we'll not be blown away with every wind of doctrine. And that's what the Bible says can happen to you. Now, what Satan does, uh, Satan doesn't want you to know the truth. And there are a lot of things that will sound good to you and you'll get sucked up into those things and you'll end up in many false beliefs. And the devil knows that. And so what he does, he attacks Christians that are weak. And who are the weak Christians? The ones that don't study. The ones that have no idea what the Bible says about these things. It's the weak Christians that get attacked 
And if you don't take time to study, there's a danger here. And you need to avoid that danger so you study not to be deceived. Now, as I close today, let me show you something about deception and confusion on the return of Christ. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2. And this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, which, by the way, he founded with Silas on his second missionary journey. And you can read about the founding of this church in Acts 17. And this church was like many today. They were confused about the second coming. Now, Paul had written them a letter previously that was 1 Thessalonians. And if you remember, 1 Thessalonians contains this great passage about the rapture. That's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then continues on into chapter 5. And Paul had written them about this, but they had gotten confused. Now, the rapture was really hopeful. That is very hopeful teaching, glorious teaching. What Satan wants to do, to do is to destroy your hope. And so he sent deceivers to Thessalonica to confuse them about the coming of Christ. Now, we just talked about that blessed hope. Satan wants to destroy your hope. And what he wants to do is to make you a miserable Christian. And that's what he did in Thessalonica. Now, the people in Thessalonica were going through a lot of persecution. And Jesus said that when the end comes, there will be a lot of persecution. So they were going through this persecution. And they read that first letter that Paul wrote about the rapture. And they thought that they had missed it. Now, can you imagine that, being a Christian, and you thought you missed the rapture? Now, when the rapture comes, there may be some of you that will show up next Sunday. And that would be bad news for you, because if you missed the rapture. But if you're truly a Christian, you can't miss the rapture. That, that simply can't happen. If you did, if you miss it, there's no hope. There's no hope for you. If you miss it the first time, there's not a second time for you because there's not a second time for people to hear the gospel now. So these are people that thought they missed the rapture, and that ruins your hope. Now look at chapter 2, verse number 1. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now the rest of the chapter goes on into things that we'll talk about a little bit later. But for now, I want you to see this. He says, let no man deceive you. Well, how are they going to keep from being deceived? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote them this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They read it, and they were straightened out, and so they were no longer deceived. And this is what you have to do. Paul's letter is preserved. It's Scripture, and you read it so as not to be deceived. The book of Matthew that we're reading now is Scripture, and you read what Jesus said so as not to be deceived. Revelation is preserved, it is scripture, and you read it so you will not be deceived. So what do you do? You read, you read, and you read, and you study, and you will not be deceived. And there we find the real value of the study. This is, this is very important stuff, and this is why Jesus spent so much time 
talking about it. Now, we're going to see in the next message that they were way off. They had their eschatological position, but they were greatly lacking in understanding. And there were things that they could not understand until Jesus took the time to explain them. Now, we're going to come back to this in three weeks, and I'm glad that we can get this part out of the way, the importance of studying this. Now, let me close with this thought, and this is the real closing this time. This is not the symbolic metaphorical closing. This is the real thing. There, there are some things, there are some things that you can be sure of. You can be sure of this. You can be sure that you have eternal life. Does the Bible say that? You can actually know that you're saved. You know that you have eternal life. And then there's something else you can know. You can know that you'll be in the resurrection. That's what I talked about last week. If you have been planted together in the likeness of Christ's death, you shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So you can expect that. You can believe that. You can be sure of that, that your body will be raised in the resurrection. But I also want to tell you this. There's a third thing that you can be sure of. You can be sure of this. Jesus is coming back. This is no fairy tale. This is as real as you and as this room. In fact, it's more real than that because God said it. And you can't get any more sure of it. So there might be someone here today and you don't know Jesus. You haven't trusted him as your Savior. Maybe you don't understand very much about this. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about sending away the day of grace. And that could happen to you. I'm preaching today about the coming of Christ. And if he comes and you haven't believed this, then the day of grace is over for you. This could actually be the last gospel message that you'll ever hear. And even if it's not the last one you hear, what God can do is slam the door of salvation shut so that you will never believe. You've heard too much and you still won't believe him. J. Oswald Smith wrote, Why should anyone hear the gospel of Christ twice before everyone has heard it once? Now, you've heard it once, and there's no guarantee that you'll hear it twice. So let me tell you, if this interests you, if you're thinking about this and you want to know more about it, then I can tell you now that the day of grace is not over for you. And I'm not talking about somebody who thinks they're a Christian because mama was a Christian. And I'm not speaking to people who think that they're Christians because they were born in the United States of America. And therefore, this is supposed to be a Christian nation, therefore I am Christian. I'm not talking to those kinds of people because those kinds of people are not going to heaven. They'll miss heaven if that's their belief. But what I am telling you is if you repent of your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you believe that he died to save you, I can promise you this, you will be saved. And when you're saved, you can look for this glorious appearing of Christ. You know that he's coming. So why do we study it? Well, we study it because in talking about these things, there are some people that are caught in this gospel net that spreads out with the truth and it catches people and they believe the truth, and they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very important that you know this. Jesus is coming back. You'll be blessed by it. You'll have hope in it. 
study it because it's going to make you a better Christian. And study it if you don't know the Lord. Listen to the sermons because you can be saved by this kind of information. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time to talk about your coming. What a great hope this is. That we look forward to it. It, it fills our hearts and um, makes every problem of the world go away. We don't need to worry about this world because we know that you're coming back. We know that we're going home to be with you. And we pray that your kingdom will come this glorious time that the scriptures talk about. I pray for someone here today who doesn't know you as Savior. I pray today, Lord, they would confess their sins, repent of sins, put their faith in you, and then know that they're on their way to heaven. And then for Christians who have not been living in this blessed hope, Lord, I pray that they would look at the scriptures again and see how this ought to change a person who believes that Christ is coming back. This is the kind of thing that keeps us out of sin. Help us to keep this ever in our minds and on our hearts that Christ could come at any time and we don't want to be ashamed at his coming. Bless us, Lord. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.